Uh, Dr. Brilliant is uh, speechless, huh? Uh, 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 kind of reminds me of Steve Jobs in a way. Is a hippie who hasn't dropped a bit of that, but uh, carried far beyond <laughs> uh, mere hippiedom to uh, planetary consequence, and did it via a route that not that many take, I think. And it, I was going to suggest you maybe two bits of reading to sort of just establish what we're talking about. What happened with your guru in India? And what happened when you were on the ground dealing with smallpox, the last smallpox in the world in India? The conversations at the interval take place a few times a month at the Long Now Foundation's bar, cafe, and museum venue, The Interval, in San Francisco. This podcast is brought to you by Stripe, a company that's working to build the economic infrastructure of the internet. They help people start internet businesses and accept online payments from customers all over the world. Well, first of all, it's really wonderful to be here, and everything that you touch turns into something amazing all through the years. And I really deeply respect that. And secondly... Can everybody hear well? It could be louder. Louder. I, I so, was going to say, uh, Stuart said that the path that I took, uh, as circuitous as it was, was unusual. Uh, going from being a left-wing pinko to being a hippie to living in a monastery to working for the UN. But that was the normal career path in the 60s. <laughs> Everybody did it. Um, so I, I don't know where anything is in this book. Um, Dr. What, Brilliant what has been on book read? tour for on and off for three months. But nobody asked me to reads something specific that I haven't. Dog-eared. Dog-eared. So what, you want me to read which one? Um, something with, something with uh, the guru, Maharaji. Something with Maharaji in it. Um, can I tell you the story? Yeah, tell the story. Because the guy who wrote this isn't here. Right. <laughs> um, so, uh, do you know the first time that I met you? So, I was an intern uh, at Presbyterian Hospital in San Francisco, and Gerich and I, who was then Elaine Feldman, oh, by then she was Elaine Brilliant, we were living on Turk Street. And uh, one day, I was walking from Presbyterian Hospital to my house on Turk Street, and for some reason, I walked by this place where there were a bunch of hippies in an enclosure, and there was a sign that said, the Die-In Project. What was it called? What was the name of your project? Well, there was the Hunger Show. The Hunger Show. The Life After Earth, right? Life we after were all starving together. Yeah, starving. These guys did starving. It. Yeah. And you were all there. Yeah. And I was on the outside looking in. And later on, I got to be on the inside looking out. But that's when I first, <laughs> so, when I first had a glimpse of you guys, because you were a little bit older than me. I hate to admit that. And we were classic youthful folly. We thought we were saving the overpopulation bomb by showing what people were going to be looking like when they got hungry. Which yeah. And then we had people from the hog farm, and the hog farm buses were there, and people would drop out, and that was them dying, mm -hmm. and they would escape because they got hungry. So um, at the end of my internship, as, a, as my internship was ending, a group of Native Americans took over Alcatraz. How many of you are old enough to remember that? That was a pretty cool moment, wasn't it? And, and the Native Americans who took over Alcatraz did so because under the Treaty of Laramie, any piece of property stolen or taken from Indians which was declared surplus, reverted back to those same Native Americans. And Alcatraz was declared surplus property, 
and it should have reverted back, but we didn't do it. And so a group of Native Americans took over Alcatraz and were there for about 18 months. Towards the end of that time, a woman named Lou Trudell, who was married to a good friend of ours, John Trudell, decided that the baby that she was carrying, she wanted to deliver on Indian liberated land. And there was no water, there was no medicine, there were no doctors. And Herb Cain began writing in his column, is there no damn doctor here willing to go out and help deliver that baby? Is there no damn doctor? Is there no doctor? Is, isn't there a doctor anywhere who's willing to go out and live there? And I thought that was like an ad that said, Larry, come to Alcatraz. So I did, and I lived on Alcatraz for, for only about three weeks. You're how old at this point? About nine. <laughs> Twenty. Well, there's no other what? way that I could have been alive in that period of time. <laughs> I what, would have 26 been, uh, or something, 25? Uh, no, I'm a little older than that, but not much. This okay. would have been 1969, so I'd have been 25. Yeah. Great. Yeah. So um, I lived on the island, and of course, the truth is that women deliver their babies, and doctors just stand by and... You know, take credit. Yeah, take credit. <laughs> That's exactly what it is. Um, but uh, when that baby was born, they gave that that child named Wavoka, and that's a magic name. Wavoka was the Paiute Sioux Indian medicine man who started the ghost dance religion. And uh, when Wavoka was born on Indian liberated land, that night became an electric night. Mm -hmm. And a lot, of, a lot of Native Americans cut themselves. There was a lot of bleeding. A lot of people took LSD. I remember one Green Beret who took LSD that night and kept on cutting himself and I kept on sewing him up and we eventually had to evacuate him and I was on a Coast Guard cutter and it was kind of bumpy coming to pier whatever, 47, 49, whatever it was. And when I got off, uh, the, um, the ambulance came and took him to San Francisco General and they pushed me in front of a bunch of television cameras. And it seemed like every TV camera in the world was there because I was the only white guy who had come off the island. And they asked me, what do the Indians want? <laughs> and I'm from Detroit, Michigan. I had never met an Indian before. <laughs> but I must have said something. And over the next couple of days, George and I got phone calls. And uh, I got an offer to play a young doctor in a movie. <laughs> And um, that movie was called The Medicine Ball Caravan. And it was also called We Have Come For Your Daughters. And uh, the first day of that uh, caravan, of course we did it. I mean, that, you know, it was the 60s. So of course we dropped out of residency and everything else and ran away with the circus. And the first day of that caravan, which was Pier 37 or something like that, there were 25 buses, and it was supposed to have been the Grateful Dead and the Jefferson Airplane. It wound up being Jethro Tull and Pink Floyd. And that first day, my first job as the, one of the rock docs on that, on that trip was to vaccinate the entire cast against smallpox. Why? Well, because we were thinking we were going to do a trip to England, and we ultimately did a Pink Floyd concert. And, Canterbury, and to come back into the U.S., you had to have one of those little yellow cards. I didn't know what smallpox was. I certainly didn't think of this as some wooga-wooga harbinger of what I was going to do later on. But one of the first people that I vaccinated was a guy named Wavy Gravy. And Stuart... Stuart and to this day, he hasn't gotten smallpox. It's amazing. It worked. It worked. All of you who are against vaccination, that's the truth. <laughs> His autism is a little over the top. <laughs> <laughs> that's not true. Whoever's watching this streaming, that's not true. That was bogus. That was a fraudulent study, honest. So here's the other thing. This guy, when I met him, he smiled, which wouldn't be unusual for anybody else, except he had rainbow-colored teeth. They're there. <laughs> 
And he, he was wearing a duck bill hat with a real duck's real bill. And he had a jumpsuit that his amazingly gorgeous, wonderful, beloved wife, then known as Bonnie Jean Beecher, had sewn for him, made of rainbows. Magic my teeth. And I looked at this guy and I said to myself, hmm, he's not like anybody I've ever met before. <laughs> and I didn't know who he was, but whatever he was, I wanted a little bit of that. Hmm. So we jumped on the bus, George and I, and we stayed together, the four of us, for 40 years, right? Yep. Pretty close to that. And George uh, and I have been married 47 years, and Wavy and Ja have been married 50 effing years, and they say <laughs> that hippie relationships don't last. Yeah. <laughs> but we, we finished the movie in Canterbury, and then we figured out that we liked doing it. So we got a couple new buses, and we drove from Canterbury, England, to Kathmandu. Now, there's a lot of reasons we went to Kathmandu. We were actually altruistically trying to go to Bola Island, where there had been a cyclone, and almost a million people had been killed. But there was a war between East Pakistan and West Pakistan. We couldn't get visas to go there. We turned left and went to Kathmandu. And then we trekked. The four of us, with the photographer, Ruffin Cooper, and two, two porters, Dawatundrup and Sanamandu, and we trekked for 30 days into the mountains. And when we were there, the people we met who had nothing were so kind and generous to us that we made a pledge to ourselves that if ever our life circumstances changed and we had money, we wanted to give something back to the people we'd met in Nepal. And then we all went off in different places. Girija stayed and meditated, took a bunch of Goenka courses. Wavy and Ja and I went back to the U.S., stayed on the buses. Girija and I corresponded by phone. I wanted her to come back. I loved her. She wasn't so sure. She had met this other man that she was living with named Neem Karoli Baba. That's funny, actually. I mean, <laughs> really. Um, She's laughing. We, we were together in a psychedelic painted bus visiting my mother in Cleveland, Ohio, when a telegram came from Girija saying, I am living with Neem Karoli Baba and Ramdas. And my mother came and said, Your wife has left you. <laughs> but she came back, and we went back, and we met Neem Karoli Baba. I did. So that's the answer to your question. How did mm -hmm. we get there? The real question is what happened. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I was a scientist. I think I still am a scientist. I'm mm -hmm. proud to be. I, I'll know on uh, Earth Day because I'll be marching on the science yeah. march. That'll be proof that I'm a scientist. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, when I first went into the ashram, which is called Kenshi, and I saw all these graven images, I don't think we have a picture of Kenshi there. Oh, that's us. That, we, we got the Indian subcontinent yeah, there. We're getting there. We're getting there. Okay. But there, we, that, that's, a, that, that's a picture over there of Girija and I um, with our hippie bus in uh, the Khyber Pass. Okay. And I, can I just digress? I, I was invited uh, to spend a day at the Pentagon. I got an award and I was invited to, to, uh, to speak to the Joint Chiefs of Staff and give a talk in the Pentagon Auditorium and then get on Armed Forces TV and speak to three and a half million soldiers, sailors, and Marines. I apologize for everything we did wrong in the 60s, conflating warriors and war. And um, I was asked to speak about asymmetrical threats to American national security. And I thought that before I would start talking about something like that, it was really important that all the brass and the the auditorium, and there was so much brass I could hardly see. The light was bouncing off of their chests. I just thought it was important to start off being very honest. So when I was doing my slideshow, that's the first slide that I showed. Now you may not know that I have a doobie in my hands there. <laughs> and that's, that's Kyber Pass. And I said, uh, before we get started, I want to thank you for inviting me back to the Pentagon. This is my second visit. Of course, the first time I was here was with 500,000 screaming anti-war radicals, and you wouldn't let me in. 
And I want you to know that that's me in Afghanistan smoking some dope in the Khyber Pass, and that's our psychedelic bus. Now, there's only two possibilities, I said to these generals, scared shitless. I said, there's only two possibilities. Either you know about that, and you still invited me here, in which case, good on you, <laughs> or you don't know about that, in which case, we're in a whole world of hurt. <laughs> and I counted one, two. My heart was going, and then they all stood up and applauded, and I said, okay, this is cool. This is going to be fun. <laughs> but there was that moment. <laughs> so um, how I got to the Pentagon was because my guru, after I overcame my, my fear of graven images, and uh, I almost left because I felt that it was the wrong place for me, that he showed me something that I had never experienced before. And that's a picture of, of him holding my hand. And when he went into a state of consciousness that I, I can't even begin to describe, and I looked at him and I realized that he loved everybody in the world. Didn't matter what color they were, what race they were, whether they were from the seven Muslim countries that are being barred, or from the 200 other countries. Didn't matter if they were men or women or Muslims or Hindus. He loved everybody in the world. And I could feel it because holding his hand, it was like holding on to some kind, of, I know this isn't scientific, holding on to some kind of an electrical cable. And I had this fleeting thought that it's cool that he loves everybody in the world, but he's supposed to love everybody in the world. That's his job description. He's a guru. And if you're a rabbi or a priest or a minister, you're supposed to love everybody in the world. But then this thing happened to me, which is that I loved everybody in the world. And I didn't know this machine did that. I mean, none of us came out of the womb with an operating guide. There's no website that you go to put your name in and it tells you what, where all your buttons are. I don't know how he touched that button in me but he did. It certainly stayed with me all my life. Not that I'm always loving everybody. A lot of times I hate certain people. But I do go back to that state of consciousness every once in a while. Mm -hmm. And it wouldn't have happened without him in that moment. And Girish and I stayed uh, in the ashram for about another year, a little less than a year. And one day he called me and he yelled out, Dr. America! because that was the name he gave me. I didn't get a cool name like Ram Das or Krishna Das or any of the Das brothers. I was called Dr. America, which really was a bummer. I mean, honestly, it was a bit of a bummer. How do you explain that? You know, you got a spiritual guru, spiritual name. So he said, Dr. America, how much money do you have? Which was another bummer because I thought he was gonna hit me up. And I said, I had $500. And he said, Jute Bola, you're lying. How much do you have in the United States? And I thought, and I said, I've got another $500 in the United States. And in Hindi, he began to chant, $500 here, $500 there, $500 here, $500 there. You are no doctor. Which is what my mother used to say to me. <laughs> You only got $500. You're no fucking doctor. I mean, really, you can't do better than that. And then he switched from Hindi, you are no doctor, to English. And he started saying, you are no doctor, you are no doctor. And he was really getting into it. You are no doctor, you are... U-N-O doctor, United Nations Organization doctor. You're going to become a U-N doctor. Dr. America is going to become a United Nations doctor and you're going to go to villages, and you're going to give vaccinations. And I think I said something really profound. I said, what? <laughs> and we had a, a wonderful translator, Ravi Khanna, who was there. And I said, what is he saying? Is he saying he wants me to give him an injection? I didn't get it. I honestly didn't get it. And then he said, no, you're going to work for the United Nations smallpox eradication campaign 
because God is going to lift this one form of suffering from the shoulders of humanity, and you're going to be part of it. And now, you know, Buddha said that you will always have old age, suffering, disease. These are perennials. But Maharaji was saying, that's true. You will always have suffering, but I'm going to take this one form of suffering away. God is going to give us a break. Why didn't, how did he know about smallpox? Oh, if I knew the answer to that question, I would be levitating. What do you mean? How do I, how would I know? I mean, I've been asking that question ever since. He didn't get it from you, because you were not focused on it. I wasn't even, I'd never seen a case of smallpox. I didn't know anything about smallpox. I mean, really, how did he even know that there was a disease called smallpox, that it could be eradicated? I mean, I barely remembered that I was a doctor. I was a hippie in, in an ashram in the Himalayas. We, we weren't thinking like that. You know, we were thinking like the old part of our life was gone and we were just there. I have no idea. Okay. So what, what did he tell you to do, if anything? Oh, he told uh, me to go with Girija down from the little Himalayan ashram that we were in to New Delhi, which I just read today is the most polluted place in the world. It wasn't then. Mm. Um, and to go and find the World Health Organization office and to go and get my job. So we did. It was about 10 or 15 hours. It was a bus and a taxi and a train and a rickshaw, and we went down there. And um, we both walked into the front office, and there was a wonderful woman named Edna Boyer, an Anglo-Indian, and she was right at the front desk, and she said, who are you? And I said, my name is Larry Brilliant. I live in an ashram. My guru said that smallpox is going to be eradicated. This is God's gift to humanity, and I'm supposed to work for you. And they kicked me out. <laughs> I mean, I was still wearing my ashram clothes. And we went back to the ashram, and Maharaji said, did you get your job? And I said, no. He said, go back. And he, I said, when? He said, right now. So we went back on the bus and the train and the rickshaw and went back to WHO and we walked in and they said, are you here again? I said, yes, I live in an ashram in the Himalayas, my guru, and they kicked me out again. And after about 10 times, we began to get smart. Girija had someone that she knew, the Sonys or the Barmans, and we borrowed a, a jacket and I got rid of my skirt and I began to put a tie on and got my hair cut because I had hair down to the middle of my back and a big beard. And I walked in and they kicked me out three, four, five times more and Maharaji kept on saying, you'll get your job. You'll get your job. You'll get it. And he kept pushing me and we kept going back and we were pretty close to, I was pretty close to losing faith. I don't think Girija ever lost faith, but I was pretty close to losing mm. faith. And one day I walked in there and there was an American there. And I had never seen an American in the WHO office before. And he looked like a big football coach. He was about six foot three, and he was from Ohio, and had this big, wonderful, open Midwestern face. And he said, hi, who are you? And I said, hi, my name's Larry Brilliant. I'm a doctor. I live in Ashram in the Himalayas. My guru said that smallpox was eradicated. I'm supposed to come work for WHO and help eradicate smallpox. Who are you? He said, my name is D.A. Henderson. I'm the head of the smallpox program. I've come here from Geneva. We don't have a smallpox program yet in India. We want one. We think the last battle against smallpox will be fought here. Mm. But we don't have a program because Mrs. Gandhi hasn't authorized us to have a program here. And he thought about it for a while. And we went upstairs to see Nicole Grasset, who was the head of the program. And they said, why don't you have Dr. Henderson interview you, and he can write a note to the record in case circumstances change. And 10 years later, after we'd eradicated smallpox, and I had started off working in villages and then districts and then states, and then every once in a while I was the head of the program, while all the people who really knew what they were doing were out of town or sick. Uh, after we had finished and eradicated smallpox and made two billion house calls with 150,000 people from 170 countries, Muslims and Hindus and Jews, Christians and Jains and Baha'is, all working together, Russians and Americans who had 40,000 nuclear weapons pointed at each other, bearing 40,000 hatchets to work together, and we had eradicated smallpox. 
and I'd gone back to Michigan. I became a professor at University of Michigan. Gerritsch was getting her PhD. DA called and said, you want to go back to India and collect all those records and put them in archives and put them on microfilm? And I did. And as I was doing that, I violated the most sacred, unwritten rule of all, which I looked at my own personnel file. And I found that memo that D.A. Henderson had done when he interviewed me on that day when he said, we don't have a program, but we may have one. And he had written, I have today interviewed a young man named Larry Brilliant. He says he's a doctor. He does not look like one. <laughs> he says his guru told him to come work for the United Nations. We don't have a place for him. We certainly don't have a place for him. He appears to have gone native. <laughs> and DA had read every word of every book I've ever written about smallpox and proofread every, everything I ever, I ever did. And he got about halfway through this book before he died. Mm -hmm. I hope it wasn't the writing. <laughs> and and Gerridge and I, uh, about two months ago, went to his memorial. He was almost 90 years old and a wonderful man. And he was our chief. And we got to work with some of the finest people in the world. Uh, of, the, of the 10 people who we work with the closest, each of them got the highest award that their country can give them. Hmm. Uh, Bill Fage and DA got the Presidential Medal of Honor. Uh, Steiner Jezik got the Czechoslovakian equivalent of that. Nicole got the French Legion of Honor. Mm -hmm. Isao Arita got the Japan Prize. And M.I.D. Sharma, who was adopted me like my, like my father, and I called him Papa, and he called me Sonny, he got uh, Padma Bhushan. And those were the people who taught me epidemiology. And we eradicated smallpox. And I don't know how that happened. I mean, I know, I know exactly what we did. I know how we visited every house in India every month and found every case and put a circle of immunity around it with vaccine. Did I mention for those of you who are anti-vaccine? <laughs> Maybe I didn't mention the fact that we would still have smallpox if we didn't have a vaccine. I'd also like to mention we had that vaccine for 170 years before we eradicated smallpox. So it's not just the vaccine. It's having 150,000 people from 170 countries all working together. Did I mention that we're not as incompetent shits as somebody in the White House would make us think? <laughs> did, did I mention that our species can really do noble things when we're willing to all work together and we're stronger together and we don't have to pretend that it's only one clane of our species that is more important than the others? Say a little about the groundwork. I mean, one of the things I got from your book that surprised me is you put a picture of your guru in the windshield of your vehicle, and that actually was cred in some places you went to, if not with the UN. How does that work? So Maharaji had a reputation for being a bit of a prophet um, in, in parts of India. He, and, 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 and I can't separate rumors from fact. You know, when he died, the newspapers said he was 300 years old. And I just don't think that was true. But, you know, who knows? Um, but but one, of the, one of the rumors about Maharaji is that when Mrs. Gandhi was a young minister and her father, who was Nehru, was the prime minister, the Chinese invaded India in 1962. Well, that's true. That's historical fact. And they came in through two parts of India, Badranath on one side and the other side near Darjeeling in the Himalayas. And the story is that they were in a cabinet meeting trying to decide how they would wage war with the Chinese. And the phone rang, and Mrs. Gandhi picked up the phone, and it was Maharaji on the phone, and she had known him before as like a household guru. And he said, don't do anything. The Chinese will go home within three days. And of course, not everybody in that room believed that. <laughs> but they waited, and the Chinese turned around and went home. And to this day, if you read the history of that invasion, nobody knows really why the Chinese turned around. I'm not saying that Maharaji made the Chinese turn around. I don't know, mm -hmm. but that's just that was one of the rumors. 
So when we were working in the smallpox program, you have to understand, almost nobody believed we could eradicate smallpox. Smallpox was not really a regular disease. Mm -hmm. It was ubiquitous all over the world. Everybody had it. I mean, it, you, the scale of it was so much that in the 20th century, how many of you were alive in the 20th century? Now, come on, that was only 18 years ago, so I mean, right? In the 20th century, 500 million people died from smallpox. Half a billion people. I mean, it's not like that was a long time ago, but it was everywhere. And uh, almost everybody in WHO thought that we were crazy. Smallpox was the fourth disease considered for eradication. We had failed to eradicate yellow fever. Mm. Mostly because monkeys do not stand in line putting mm. their arms out to get vaccinated. And monkeys get yellow fever. We had failed to eradicate yaws. We had failed to eradicate malaria. Mm. So it wasn't unduly skeptical to think that we wouldn't be able to eradicate smallpox. And in fact, in all the time I worked in WHO, I never met a single WHO official who believed that we could eradicate smallpox, mm. except the people working on the smallpox program. And I write in the, in the book a story of uh, the head of communicable diseases. This is the top guy. DA worked for him. We all worked up for the head of communicable diseases, Dr. Ignatovich, a Polish epidemiologist. And he said, trying to eradicate smallpox in India is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard of. It's a fool's mission. Mm -hmm. You might be able to eradicate it in America because it's a rich country. You might be able to eradicate it in Burma because it's a totalitarian government. But you'll never eradicate it in India, and I'm so sure that if you ever could eradicate smallpox, I will eat the tire from a Land Rover. <laughs> and really, one of the happiest days of my life was when Nicole Grasset took a tire of a Land Rover to Palam Airport in New Delhi and put it in a crate and wrote a little note, Dear Dr. Ignatovich, enclosed, please find one tire from one Land Rover, would you kindly report back to us the texture, the bouquet, and if you need any mustard or ketchup. <laughs> so it, it, it wasn't exactly that everybody agreed that we'd be able to do that. It was hard. So was it incremental progress that was keeping people encouraged that one region or another would get cleansed and that would take you to the more intense That is exactly it. It was, a great, it was a great strategy. Mm -hmm. you, you kind of pick off the low-hanging fruit. Mm -hmm. And you, you work in countries that you think you've got a better chance at it. And by the time we got there, there were only four countries that still had smallpox. Uh, when the program began in 1965, mm -hmm. there were 35 countries. And then we did the same thing inside India. You would go to the, the states that were better developed, which were the southern states. Mm -hmm. And you'd work there first. And you put a ring around the most difficult states, which were the four Hindi-speaking states, Madhya Pradesh, Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, and for, for the, we'll, we'll call Bengal a Hindi-speaking state, it isn't really. But those four states were the last states in the world with smallpox. And this little girl with that balloon, that's the last case of killer smallpox to occur in nature. And her name is Rahima Banhu, and she was in Bangladesh in a little island called Bola Island, the very same island that Wavy and John Gerridge and I set off to go to, that it had that terrible cyclone. Hmm. And she was in a little village called Karalia Village. And when the scabs fell off her and she coughed and the last viruses left her body and landed on the, the ground in Bangladesh and they were cooked by the sun, that was the end of an unbroken chain of transmission of one of the worst diseases, if not the worst disease, in human history. And I was there and I took that picture. And I bought that balloon, Smallpox Can Be Stopped, in San Jose. And I carried those balloons around with me for two years. I never dreamed that I would be actually seeing the last case of smallpox. But that's it. That's, that, that, when I started writing this book, which took me 40 fucking years. <laughs> Must when, be a great relief to have this off your mind. Yeah, I lost 40, 40 tons of weight. I mean, when I started writing it, I wanted to chronicle the story of Maharaji and the story of Girj and I traipsing all over the world and Wavy and John, Girj and I playing around for so long. I wanted to chronicle that story. 
I didn't dream that we would elect somebody as we elected someone. And when towards the end of writing that book, the, this uh, hate-filled political campaign began, my purpose shifted a little bit. I wanted a book that would be a proof point of a time when all of us working together could do something magical. And not just something that you make up, but something for which there's historical fact. I wrote a scientific book on smallpox eradication, peer-reviewed. That's what I used to make sure that every date and every number was right. Girajit kept the diary when we were with Maharaja, so did I. I wrote three, four hundred reports for WHO. So the science in the book is right. And I wanted that story of how we had eradicated smallpox to offer it as not an antidote, but contrary evidence to the idea that we can't do anything. Because we can. We can really do great things together. Okay, and that little girl is proof. Let's bring that into the present. Tonight you're going to leave right after this to go to where, Aspen? Uh, L.A. And LA, to talk you to know where that is. Yeah, giving pledge people to raise money for what? So uh, I work a lot on pandemics. Uh, a friend of mine, Jeff Skoll, um, who was uh, the first president of eBay, well, the first employee of eBay, actually, um, he started a couple of foundations, and one of them is the Skoll Global Threats Fund. And I ran that for seven years. Now I'm chairman of that. And one of, uh, we work on five threats. We work on pandemics and climate change and water and nuclear weapons and regional wars that could become world wars. Cheerful subject like that. Uh, and uh, we've become, I don't know, we, there's sort of a mixed story about pandemics. You know Ebola and Zika, MERS and SARS, lots of fever, swine flu, bird flu. There's been more, more animal viruses jumping from animals to humans in the last 30 years than we have records of before. And that's worrisome. But much more worrisome than that is that the institutions that normally keep us safe are sort of AWOL. In the Ebola outbreak, you know, uh, Obama sent 3,500 American soldiers to West Africa. We spent billions of dollars because WHO failed in its job to protect us because it took six months to correctly identify what the disease was that was killing people in West Africa. So WHO is going to have a new director general in May, and I think it's going to go through a period of self-examination, and it's offline. Hmm. And I think this presidency, as far as pandemics, is offline. You're, hmm. you're not going to see public health, let alone pandemic preparedness, at the top of the priority list for this White House. And they fired the head of CDC, and they're cutting the Center budgets. Center for Disease Control. Center for Disease Control, or Centers for mm. Disease Control, actually. Uh, and uh, Trump is cutting the budget for public health and pandemic preparedness. There's a new Secretary General of the UN who just began on the 1st of January, really good guy. Portuguese guy, really good, but he's just getting started. So if you look at those agencies that normally keep us safe, the federal government, WHO, the UN, CDC, they're all offline. We've got a great head of the World Bank who's a doctor, mm. Jim Kim. Um, he'll be working really hard. But by and large, we have to have a safety net to protect us to stop pandemics, to end the threat of pandemics. So I'm going to be trying to put together a new organization, um, and, uh, and this is being broadcast everywhere, so I can't tell you how much money, but uh, Jeff Skoll gave us a lot of millions of dollars to start up an organization to work on pandemics, and I'm hoping that other people will be interested in What's it called? Hmm? What's the, our organization called? called? Ending Pandemics. And what will it do? So it will be a civil society, private sector augment, augmentation to government. You can't replace governments. But in this period of time when you've got Brexit, you've got these centrifugal forces tearing hmm. apart all the post-Second World War international agreements, hmm. you've got to have something else that's on alert and, and, and watching and trying to build a cadre, a cohort of epidemiologists, 
and other people who are working to make us safe. Well, that's great. All right. Yeah. I'm so excited. <laughs> and uh, thank you, Ryan, because we <laughs> start going with uh, some feedback from the audience here. And uh, you can raise your hand, and Michael will sort of identify you and then get a mic to you. And, while and, and, and while you're doing that, there's a guy here you can always use as Phil. <laughs> if, right. if, if, there's ever, if there's ever a delay in anybody asking a question, you can always just hand this guy a mic. He doesn't, he's a microwave. He doesn't need any startup time. Well, we're working up on that. I do have one question, which is not in the book, but I know you had a sort of lifelong friendship with Steve Jobs. And um, there was a hippie down to his bare feet uh, his entire life. Um, but he went to India, and sort of in the biographies, there's the, he went to India, mumble, mumble, and then he came back. Did anything happen to Steve in India? Well, we were in the mumble, mumble. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Steve uh, was a student at Reed College, and he heard about Neem Kroli Baba, about our guru, hmm. that guy. And he uh, decided he was going to come to India to meet him. And he, he had to get all of his stuff together and raise the money to go there. And by the time he got there, Maharaji had died. Mm -hmm. hmm. He actually got there six months after Maharaji died. So it took him a while to get his stuff together. Uh, and um, he wandered in, our, in the ashram that we lived in. This is the ashram that Ramdas lived in and Dan Goldman lived in and Krishna Das and, and Steve Jobs. And uh, he was 19 years old. And he was barefoot and shaven head and, and wandering around. And um, the first time I met him was when he showed up at the WHO office in New Delhi because the rumor was that there was somebody working there who had five minutes ago been a hippie living in that same ashram. And you could get a free lunch and it was air conditioned. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so he came and he had lunch and he had a lot of salads. and. He was 19, and that's when I first met him. And um, when we started the Seva Foundation, he gave us the first money to start Seva. He what was Seva? Seva Foundation. What is, is Seva? Seva is an organization that a group of us started after we eradicated smallpox. And it was uh, the founders were people who worked in the smallpox program or who were friends of ours during the smallpox program. And like every other organization started in the 60s. We had UN diplomats and epidemiologists and scientists and professors and mystics and a clown. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, now, almost 40 years later, SAVA's programs and projects have given back sight to four and a half million blind people in 25 countries or so. Here, here. Who has the mic? What's your question? I have the mic here. And actually, my question was about Seva, because you hadn't mentioned it when I was given the mic. Um, so I'm going to turn that into a thank you for the work that you've done. I've been a Seva supporter since the first, very first year with um, the Grateful Dead announcing it at a show at the Greek Theater. So Wavy, thank you. And Larry, thank you for that work. And I also wanted to ask how, what you're doing with the diabetes programs with the Native American population. So we, thank you very much for that. Um, so SEVA has kind of um, moved the diabetes project into a blindness project with Native Americans. Because that's what we, we were good at, is working on blindness. Um, we had a lot of other programs at one time or another. We had a program in Guatemala. We, we worked on the accompaniment of Guatemalan refugees, the Jaguar project. And we realized that we had gotten good at one thing, and that's blindness. So we kept working with all the people as best as we could, uh, but we worked on trying to get rid of blindness in all of those communities. And that's sort of how we got up to four and a half million. And there's somebody here who's a friend of Pavi. Yeah. And uh, Pavi and her husband uh, are part of the Aravind family. And I can't talk about Seva's four and a half million without mentioning this incredible eye hospital in South India in Madurai, which did most of these eye operations, created most of these techniques, and has helped us 
as we've tried to lower the cost of an interocular lens from $250 down to $0.85. Because when you talk about appropriate technology, a lot of people fail to mention the cost. Mm -hmm. And something that is inappropriate at $250 is very appropriate at $0.85. Cents. You're here. Kirch, you're brilliant. Would you talk about the well and your cost? Ah. Repeat the question. Uh, the question is to talk about the well and what we guys did together. Uh, I'll tell my side of the story. His will be very different, but not that different. Um, we took your money and we ran with it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's probably more true than I would like to admit. But do you know why I had that money? No. Ah, you see? So there's another part of the story. So um, when we were starting SEVA, we wanted to, because we were hippies, we wanted to do the best science we could. You understand how that works. We wanted to be impeccable. And to do that, we wanted to build a program that looked a little bit like a ham sandwich. And it had an epidemiological survey was one piece of bread, and then an outcome survey was another piece of bread, and the ham was actually the program doing it. So I was asked to run a survey of blindness in Nepal, which is easier to say than to do, because you have to have a random sample of all the villages in Nepal. About a third of Nepal is inaccessible in the mountains, and that meant that one third of all the villages you couldn't really reach very easily on foot, so we had to have a helicopter. And that first concert that you talked about that the Grateful Dead did was Wavy talked the Grateful Dead into doing a concert to pay to fly the helicopter to Kathmandu. Well, I've got, I got to finish the story. Hold, hold that thought. Hold that this thought. Is, this is pretty good. Uh, uh, not, no chance. We had, <laughs> we had, had our, our, our little uh, first meeting and, and forming SEVA, and I was instructed uh, to try and get these boys to play a, a concert for us. Like everybody says, we have a cool thing. Let's get the Rolling Stones or whatever. And I, unlikely, but I did have a, a few connections. And uh, we went from uh, where we had the meeting to the airport in Detroit, and I got on the airplane, and who else was on the airplane but the Grateful Dead? <laughs> and they didn't have parachutes. <laughs> <laughs> and the rest is history. So, so uh, we had the Grateful Dead, and maybe Wavy has done, I don't know, 150 SEVA concerts, benefits, maybe half that, only 75? Strike that 150, insert 75, but that's a hell of a lot of concerts. Maybe 10, 15, the Grateful Dead did concerts, something like that. Um, but we did this survey, mm -hmm. and uh, we had a helicopter, we had the helicopter for six months. We went to 108 villages wow. with that helicopter. And when we finished the survey on the last day, the last village far away, the helicopter crashed. Now, it crashed in this magical way that an oak leaf crashes in the fall when it comes down like this. Mm -hmm. And Nicole Grasset, who was in the helicopter at the time, looked to uh, Darian Ward, who was the pilot, and said, what's wrong, as he had real white knuckles. Mm -hmm. And he turned to her and said, nothing, just a simple spare parts order. Engine, one. <laughs> and we had to figure out how to get a replacement engine into a remote part of India. And I had this computer that Steve Jobs had given us mm. with a 300-baud acoustic haze modem, the one that goes <laughs> My cat's making love, you know. And somebody from the UN said, why don't you just use that and grab that satellite that's flying over and link it in to the Stanford system notepad or the University of Michigan confer, and I did that. And we managed to have a computer conferencing call. And we had Senator Hatfield's office in Oregon because they had given McMinnville, Oregon's where the helicopter came from. We had the SEVA office in Chelsea, Michigan. We had the UN office in New York. We had the US ambassador 
to India on the call. We had nine different people on a conference call. This is like 1980 or something? This is 1980 or okay. late 1979. And this was the first global event like that. Mm -hmm. And it got written up and bite, and a lot of people wrote about it. But most importantly, when we came back to analyze the data from the, the survey, Steve Jobs was visiting us and staying at our house. And I showed him this system that we had cobbled together in a kind of gerrymandered, stupid fashion. And he looked at it, and he said, that's the ugliest thing I've ever seen. Whereupon I did the only time in my life I ever asked him for money, I said, Steve, we're going to need more money. And he said, why don't you take your own ugly thing, make it into a product, take it public, make your own money, and fund your own effing charity, and I'll help you. And he did. And he helped us to meet investment bankers and take that public. And we were public when I met Ryan who was then Patty in San Diego, not San Diego, what's La Jolla. The, in La Jolla, right next to San Diego. And I said, Ryan, I've got this idea, I've got this money, I've got a company I just took public, why don't we take this technology that I've got and you guys with the whole earth community and want to do something like that? Should we have lunch? And I said, Stuart, should we have lunch? And Stuart said, well, Ryan wants to go to Black's Beach because we're going to do some nerd, nude body surfing. <laughs> and so I don't know if I can do it, but let's make it quick. And what did Ryan say? Make it quick. <laughs> <laughs> so we had lunch. And uh, I pitched Stuart, and, and, and it was exactly as he said. My great negotiating skill was, how about if I give you the money and a VAX computer and the software, and you make this thing work? And, and he did. Is, he did. I, I didn't wear the deal. <laughs> no, 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 you didn't. <laughs> and that's how the whole Earth Electronic Link mm -hmm. got started. And then this genius managed to do stuff that nobody had ever done before with electronic bulletin boards and computer conferencing. And I was smart enough to stay the hell out of the way. And protect us, actually, at your home corporation. They would have squished us if they'd known we were there. We did, we did hide that, yeah. <laughs> So, more questions out here. Hi. Uh, I was going to ask about the well. Let's actually. stand up and let's see you. Thanks. Hello. Hi. Uh, so, I was going to ask about the well initially, but uh, since that's been answered, um, what would you say, Larry, uh, was the role that psychedelics has played in your life and your sort of journey, and whether you see a place for it today? Your partner on stage uh, has been known to... Uh, I think he called it a, uh, a dead end, kind of akin to geodesic domes, and has sort of left it behind. But I'm curious what your take is. So I was young, and they were legal. <laughs> so um, on this uh, magical bus trip that was a Warner Brothers movie, every Friday, they would pay the crew. And we'd get paid out of uh, the paymaster's wagon, which was like an old 1955 Woody Chevrolet, you know, with the wood sides. And uh, the producer would open up the back tailgate, and all the crew would stand in line. And there were two strong boxes. One of them had cash. The other had something else. <laughs> and you could choose. And I don't remember ever taking any cash. <laughs> and, I think, and I think that if I had taken cash, I wouldn't have been open to meet Neem Curly Baba or understood anything about the mystical experience. I am not an advocate for drugs. God knows we have had friends of ours who died with heroin needles in their arm falling down an open elevator shaft, people that we loved. We've lost people to drugs for every year for decades. I'm not an advocate for drugs. 
I also can't lie. And the experiences that I had opened up another way of looking at things that a kind of square, nerdy, Jewish boy from Detroit, Michigan wouldn't have found. And I'm really grateful that there were two strong boxes in the back of that Woody Chevrolet. Next question. Peter, I want to stand uh, up again so we can see you. So uh, you eliminated smallpox. Uh, infectious diseases are still real. The world is doing a bit better today than we were when you started your campaign. What's the next disease? Oh, I think we're really close to eradicating polio. You, you may have seen in uh, airports some celebrity holding their fingers like that saying we're this close. They're talking about we're this close to eradicating polio. And I'm well aware that we've been saying we're this close for eight years, but we're really this close. Last year, there were 18 cases of polio in Pakistan, nine cases in Afghanistan, no cases anyplace else in the world. And that's close. It's really hard. And polio is harder. Even though in smallpox, we didn't have cell phones, we didn't have computers, we didn't even have faxes. But polio doesn't have the indication of the disease on your face. In smallpox, 100% of people who got smallpox had the disease. Mm -hmm. In polio, it's like one out of 1,000. That means 999 that can carry the virus and you don't know it. And these folks have been working like crazy and they're heroes. When I say they're heroes, I don't use that word lightly. There have been 85 polio workers murdered by the Taliban in Pakistan. And so this is not just you know, an intellectual exercise. And uh, we did a movie called The Final Inch, paying homage to these heroic polio workers. And when that story is written, that's gonna be the story of, of art generation, the eradication of polio. By the way, we're this close to eradicating another disease that you've never heard of called guinea worm. Yes. The conchiliasis, the fiery serpent from the Bible, one of the worst diseases in the world where worms that can be four feet long inhabit your body and come out trying to seek water and will come out. I'm not going to, shall I do this to you through your eye, through your nose? It's a really bad disease. And President Carter, has spent the last 20 years of his life trying to eradicate guinea worm. And usually when I do the slideshow, I show a press conference that he did when he announced that he had brain cancer, metastases to his brain. And someone said to him, how do you feel about coming this close to the end of your life? And he looked into the camera and he says, I only have one request that the last guinea worm dies before I do. <laughs> Which itself is interesting because it's a deliberate extinction of a species that has been going on for 30 years. The 60s, I think, was when the decision was made to try to eliminate guinea worms from the universe in order for this disease to disappear mainly from Africa. There used to be millions of people that got it. And that's what we've done and are about to have done. And it's a great thing to have accomplished. What else? What else is on the list? Malaria? You know, if we have, if we get a vaccine against <clears throat> malaria, um, I'd give us a really good shot. Because other than not being able to protect people mm -hmm. and develop immunity against the parasite, the rest of the epidemiology is very favorable, except the climate change is making it harder to do any of these things. Uh, the reason we have Zika is because of climate change. Historically, the um, 80s Egypta and mosquito only lived within 100 miles of the equator. It's climate change that allowed it to move. The Anopheles mosquito, which carries um, malaria, uh, has increased its sway over an additional billion people because of climate change, which warms up by latitude and by <coughs> altitude. Used to be you were safe if you were living at 6,000 feet because mm -hmm. mosquitoes carrying these diseases couldn't go there. That's not true anymore. So I think that we can one by one eliminate these diseases, but I really want us to eliminate the one that I worry about the most. And I think I'll end with this. Good. April 7th is World Health Day. It is also the 100th anniversary 
of the great influenza, the Spanish influenza, hmm. the 1917 to 1918 pandemic. One of my grandparents died in that. One of Girich's grandparents died in that. I wonder how many other people know that in your, you know, in your genealogy, some of your relatives died from that because somewhere between 25 million and 100 million people died in that one year period. And if you put that to today's numbers, you're talking about 75 to 300 million. If we had a pandemic one-tenth of that, one-hundredth of that, mm -hmm. it would bring humanity to its knees. Mm -hmm. There wouldn't be an airplane in the sky for six months. Who's going to get on a cargo boat with 300 people that, whose epidemiological status you don't know when there's no vaccine and no antiviral? I want us to stop the risk of pandemics. We know almost every, well, we know every step to take. We know how to do it. There will inevitably be outbreaks. There'll be viruses jumping from animals to humans. Outbreaks are inevitable, but pandemics are optional. We don't have to have them if we have the same public will to end them that we had to eradicate smallpox. And that's what I'm hoping that we can pull off next. Thank you. Did you mention the movie, Saint Misbehaving? Movie, Saint Misbehaving, get it. It's, it's the wavy gravy movie, Saint Misbehaving. It, it is just an app. No, you're not going to talk about your own movie. You, you, you talk you, about my book, I'll talk about your movie. Okay. <laughs> this movie. Sometimes like a, brilliant. Get it. <laughs> Tree flesh, delicious. It's, it's, thank you very much. It's, it's like a period piece. It's like, you know, why did we do the 60s? You want to know? See Saint Misbehaving. You thank can you. get it through Sava. You get it through Sava, you can get it off on Amazon. Amazon, yes. And Google Play. And Google Play, I'm so sorry. How could I have forgotten? <laughs> Larry, thank you. I will end with a little bit of Latin. Perfect millennium. Here's your challenge poem. Oh, thank you. Oh, I love it. If you enjoyed this talk, check out previous episodes with Neil Stevenson, Stuart Brand, Kim Stanley Robinson, and many more. Find them on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you like to listen. The Long Now Foundation is a member-supported nonprofit dedicated to fostering long-term thinking and responsibility. Long Now members make everything we do possible. Learn more at longnow.org.